sweet. I think I checked. Yeah. I'm fairly sure I checked. Okay. But um, my having checked something isn't necessarily as reliable as somebody else has made it up out of whole cloth. How very pertinent to what we're about to discuss. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That works. What, making up out of whole cloth? Oh, kind of. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 How do you know you're in a room full of archaeologists? I don't know. How do you know you're in a room full of archaeologists? When a mobile phone goes and it plays the Indiana Jones theme tune and half of them reach for their phones. <laughs> and the other half reach for their phones when it's the Jurassic Park theme tune. <laughs> it is a cracking good piece of music, though. Which one? Both of them. Uh, uh, yes. You've got to you've got to hand it to John Williams. I'm an archaeologist. I'm biased. Well, I know. Yeah. I know. But even so, you have to hand it to John... I mean, I, I like the Indiana Jones theme tune, and I'm not an archaeologist, nor am I a paleontologist, and I like the Jurassic Park theme tune. They're just jolly, jolly good pieces of music. They are. Big kind of stomping pieces of music. Rousing. 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 Indeed. Mm. Goodly, marchy... Well, Indiana Jones is a march, isn't it? I don't think Jurassic Park counts as a march because it's a bit too... Yeah, it's got dinosaurs marching. I suppose. Mark of... March of... Mark? Mark. Who's Mark? Don't know. Mark of the Sinister Dinosaurs. Actually, that works. That's a That's, that's a like Quatermass and the Mark of the Sinister Dinosaurs, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. That's a character for you. Yeah. Mark of the Sinister Dinosaurs. See, yeah. I was thinking like 1950s, like Captain Proson and the Mark of the Sinister Dinosaurs. Ooh. I was in with that. Oh, you know? yes. Like the Mark of the Beast, but uh, yeah. Sinister Dinosaurs. Sinister okay, dinosaurs. yeah, yeah. 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 I, when you said Quatermass in the Pit, I was immediately thinking of the um, uh, the Goon Show episode where they found the the pod underground. They did. And it kept going <coughs> Minardo. It did. And it was <coughs> all very mysterious. It was. Until they figured it out. Which we're not going to spoil. Which we're not going to spoil. Spoilers. Spoilers for a programme that was, that was broadcast in 1955. Spoilers, sweetie. <laughs> Sweetie. <laughs> we don't want to do it. We don't want to spoil it for folk. Music goes here. Might as well. Okay. Do you want ours or John Williams's? <gasps> God, can we do John we'd Williams? We'd get kicked off. So neat. Can we sing John Williams's? We could, you, you might. I can't sing. Which one do you want? Which one? Well, yeah. Which one do you want to at least hear me ruin? Let's just put our music in. God's sakes. Okay.
Back in a minute. Lovely listeners. No, we can't. We, we can't because we haven't got like drums and spoons and bagpipes and pianos and all the other stuff that you need for that. And I can't remember the words that that guy put in at the end either. I can remember the other ones. I remember the thing about this looks like a cavalcade of beggars, sin and wine, which I'm like, yeah, I'll go with that. I, I could not possibly comment on why you're remembering that line and not any of the other lines. It's appealed. <sighs> Can't take you anywhere. Not twice. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, lovely listeners. Hello. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, we're recording, aren't we? We are recording! Oh yeah! Uh, welcome around the virtual campfire. Welcome, welcome. <sighs> to Frithgast. It's I am here. half your hosting team. That's here where we are. It is. Wherever we are, Frithcast is. <laughs> it's like, you know, be mindful of the living Frithcast, young Padawan. Indeed, yes. <laughs> it goes everywhere. Anyway. <sighs> welcome. To Frithcast, I'm half your hosting team. My name is Suzanne Martin. You can find me on Facebook under that name and... No, not that bit. You're looking at me really funny. That's the end bit. That's the end bit. You normally normally say, my name is Suzanne Martin. I'm a heathen with a head full of stuff. Some of which is useful. That's your normal opening. What what she said. Go for it. This is Suzanne. We did... No, we did my bit. She's a heathen. Your turn to do your bit. With a head full of stuff. Some of which is useful. Actually, I, I, I quite, I find quite a lot of these quite rather interesting. But that's just me. I'm biased. What can I say? Now, me on the other hand, this is Kate. She's a glorious drunken lush, and I love her very much. I'm not that drunken. You'll stick with the lush part then. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'll right. go with the drunken. I'm just em- de-emphasizing. Right after a decade of marriage. <laughs> and I am not a heathen, nor do I have a head full of stuff. And what I do have is not useful. But I'm here anyway, so um, uh, hello. What are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> we've normally got a plan. I mean, I don't like to give away our trade secrets and things, but we've normally got a plan. Well, we haven't got a plan. We've got a couple of words scribbled on a napkin. Yeah. And any... then we lose it because we have to use it to mop up the wine and the coffee. And the... <laughs> All for it. I know. Um, so yeah, we. What were we? You, you wanted to talk about something this evening, though. I did. Welcome, lovely listeners. Welcome around the virtual campfire. Everybody, squidge in. Pull up a log. Grab a biscuit. Get a drink of choice. Settle in, and warm your knees. Please don't fight over the marshmallows. There are plenty. There are. It's all good. We can send the hedgehogs out on raids to get more marshmallows if we need to. Absolutely, they are. They are. They are raring to go. They as fast as a hedgehog can rare. Yeah. Oh, yeah. don't. Hey, don't because. They... Did we give them roller skates? Sorry. Did we give them roller skates? I would assume so. Okay, just checking. But I, I've, I've seen them. Otherwise, you know, going out to the shops and back again before dark. I've seen them slicing through the undergrowth. It's, it's remarkable. I need to see this. Mm. 
I'll show you after. Thanks. I'll send them out for more biscuits. I don't like to bring the mood down, but... We're like... We're like 12 and a half minutes in. We haven't actually done any frith casting yet. Oh, some of it's going to go in the random reel, you know it. Oh. Fair. Okay. Lovely listeners, it's been a long time since we've done one on archaeology. It's been so a long I time since we pressed record. It... <gasps> I cannot work with these people. I'm going to my trailer. Sorry. How very dare you. Anyway, you were saying archaeology. I was! <laughs> Interrupted. <laughs> it's been a long time since we've done an episode based on an archaeological site, so I thought Trump. we would go there. Let's go there. Where is it we're going? We're going um, into Sweden, so put your big coat on. Okay, fair enough. Okay. So we are going into Sweden, and we're going to look at a site which is... Yeah, it's kind of like, I want to look at the archaeology first, and then I want to look at how it's been interpreted in modern contexts, because the data is all good, but then there is an art to actually interpreting it as to what it most logically means. Yeah. And our logic is not necessarily <laughs> the same logic that would have been used, so interpretation can vary wildly. Mm, mm. But I want to look at, sort of start with an archaeological site in Sweden and I want to then move through that into how it's being seen in the modern day and what it might mean in the wider context of modern heathenry, what interpretations of archaeological sites might be valuable to us for our faith, for our knowledge, for our deepening of our understanding of that historical period and whether we value that as part of our faith practice. Okay. So that's what I thought we'd talk about today. Alrighty. Where are we going? I mean, I know you said Sweden. Cool. We're going to a site that I'm going to pronounce horrendously badly. Okay. Um, and I know the site as Little Ulevi. Little, right. And it is a, it's, yeah, it's a bit of an odd site. So I figure... We'll talk about it a little bit. So this is a site that um, when the stage four excavations were done in 2004 mm -hmm. had had three sets of archaeological excavations done on areas close to it anyway. Okay. So Little Alevi is a, um, a village area in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And this is looking at remains of older levels of occupation. So we talked about archaeology in layers like ogres yeah. and how the further down you go, the Parfait. further back in time you go. In most cases, that's how it works. There are occasions when it doesn't, it wobbles about a bit, but in most cases, the further, the deeper down the earth you go, the more, uh, the further back in time. It's like astronomy. Kind of like astronomy in reverse. The deeper into space you look, the further back in time you're going. Yeah, like that, ah, but Earth. Okay. Yeah. So this is a site that um, has its uh, its fourth set of investigations. In 2004, 
they have a fortnight on this site and it's not a long time and the reason they're needing to do this is because there's um industrial development that's going to go straight through that piece of land mm. and they know from other investigations that they've done in the area that it's quite rich rich in archaeological deposits right so they want to see before the industrial building gets plonked straight on top of it and the foundations have to dig in and wreck everything that's underneath the ground yeah they want to see what's in there because there's likely other archaeological stuff that they can get hold of so and they couldn't find anywhere else to build their industry they could not no no so it's an industrial site it's been bought for development but the archaeologists are like can you give us a fortnight mm, mm. and the builders are like yep crack on but a fortnight's what you've got so in in the uk we would call that like a rescue dig where you'd go in and you would try and get as much data and information out of that site as possible before it the whole demolished. thing gets demolished. Yeah. So you have to race against the clock and it has to be very, very quick work. Mm. Not ideal, but it does give us something. It's a shame you couldn't do what Iceland did to NATO. Yeah. And tell them, no, you can't build your new airbase because there's... There's a rock. Fairies. With the elves in. Elves, yeah. sorry, living in that rock. Mm. Uh, so your runway's going to have to wait, buddy, sorry. It's going to have to wait two weeks until uh, we say it's okay to move the rock and yeah. then, then you're all good to go again. Yeah, not quite. So they found, when they dug this site, um, they found evidence of occupation. Um, and they found uh, occupation from the Younger Iron Age to the Early Middle Ages, which is quite a substantial amount of time. Mm -hmm. They found um, hearths and hearth pits. They found post holes, which archaeologists get very excited about. Right. They find ceramic shards. They found cooking pits and they found watering holes and they found uh, the remains of people, like human habitation on yeah. the site. So I want to do a sidestep into post holes. Just for a minute. Watch your step. Because Thank you. Post holes. I was going to say, yeah. um, why you, you made a point of mentioning that archaeologists get we happy get about very, post holes. We get very happy about post holes. Why are you so interested in post holes? Post holes are one of the big features for early medieval sites and earlier. Mm. Because if you're going to put a building up, you've got no concrete, you've got no bricks. You've of got, course. You're not usually building in stone. Mm. You're usually just building in timber. Okay. To build a building in timber, you need to get some really, really big bits of round timber. Yeah. And to get them to stand upright, you don't tend to just stand them on the ground because they fall over. So you need to dig a hole so you can put your post in it. Yeah. And then you pack the hole back with some of the fill or you might pack it with ceramic shards Pack it in nice and tight, and that becomes the structural post for your building. Okay, makes sense. So Viking Age buildings, you often just find lines of post holes because wood rots after about 30 years when it's untreated. Yes. And doesn't survive very long <laughs> at all. Ten, tends not to, not to come fetching up like 10-ish centuries later. You, yeah, you get it in very rare conditions. So what you get then is just the post hole. Okay. None of the organics remain, so you just get the post hole and then it gradually collapses in on itself 
and the walls collapse back and you just get it buried under layers and layers. And, layers. and thus nature reclaims what is hers. The post hole, yeah. The post hole, yeah. yeah. So when you're building a building in the Viking Age, you get lines of post holes. Okay. Which is great for archaeologists, because once we've found two or three of these things, we can pretty much tell you what angle the rest of them are going to be at. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. Gives you so, a kind of a kind of a site outline. It gives you like a little kind of join the dots puzzle, because they don't just put post holes in for buildings; they put them in for fences. Mm-hmm. They might put them in as like enclosure boundaries, like you know you've got your wee little sheep going on. Yeah, you yeah. want to put an enclosure around them. You might get post holes or stake holes, which is something slightly different. Um, and therefore, stake when... holes are for cows. That was way too fast. <laughs> way way too fast. Sorry. Stake holes are where you take a sharpened stake, often thinner than a post, yep. and you just stab it <clears> into the ground until it sticks. Oh, got you, okay. Post hole, you dig the hole out, yep. put a bit of loose like shards or broken stones in the bottom, put your post in, and then pack the hole. So when the wood rots, you get a very distinctive shape in the ground. Mm. Stake holes, you just get the very thin shape of the stake, and they're a lot harder to spot because they're a lot thinner. Whereas a post a post hole, you actually create the 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 hole into the ground first. Yeah. Sounds boring. Please excuse my wife. <laughs> Sorry. So archaeologists okay. get very excited about post holes. All right. Because when we found one of those, we can spend like days just excavating the post hole out, taking the fill out, cataloging it. Marking the hole, taking the the outer fill out, everything. It's yeah. fantastic. Makes <laughs> us very happy. So it, it must do. Yeah, I was going to say it must. It must do weird things to you. You kind of context layers and things. Oh yeah, because it's digging into lower ones. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the ways you can tell if you've got like a layer of sand and then a layer of clay and then a layer of gravel and then a layer of soil and somebody puts a post hole in the soil. Mm. It's going to dig through the lower layers and then you're going to fill it, backfill it with soil. So you can see it really nicely when they come up in section. Okay, yeah. yeah. You can pick them straight out. They're fantastic. <laughs> Go on. So, post holes. Now we know what one is. We find shed loads of them on this site. Okay. They're not building sheds. No, I'm... Just saying. I was going with it. So, they found the remains of two houses that they can definitely date one to the Viking Age. They think they can probably date the second one to the Viking Age in Sweden as well. So just for reference, we're to, I always think Viking Age is something like 793, is it? It is I, in Britain. I always think of that as the British one because that was when the Lindisfarne That was when, yeah, happened, the, 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 the Vikings went and heroically saved the Lindisfarne gold from the Bernie Bernie Monastery and it was... <laughs> Wonderful self-sacrifice. Absolutely. Yes. Cross-cultural. Yes. Diligent. Res understanding. Rescuage. Then. Yeah. All the sh all the shinies. It was it was a miracle, really. Uh, yeah. and Marvelous. It, and it goes on to about like ten ninety eleven hundred something like that. It does here. I, I, again, I'm yes. talking. Does you here. know? Yeah. It does here in the UK. So. Yeah. This is. 
They've got definitely got one Viking Age house. They think they've got a second one, but all they've got is one wall, one okay. set of post holes from one wall of it. And mm. on one side of the post holes, you've got like a lot of artifacts and um, hearth pits, which are just like little temporary hearths. You've got loads of those going on. Okay. On the other side of the wall, you don't. So they're kind of figuring they've got an inside of a house and an outside. Makes but sense. They haven't actually got the remainder of the house because the contexts were already destroyed mm. by the time they got to them. They couldn't just dig them and find them all pristine. You get roads going through them and other farm buildings going up later that cut through them and yeah. you're narnered for some of it. So they've got two houses that they think they found on the site. They've got 12 hearth pits and three hearths. Okay. They've also got what they think is probably like a water hole or a well on the site. So they think it's a good understanding that this is a domestic context. Right. That this is a place where people are living and working like a farm building. And you've got at least two or three little farms all in a little cluster together mm. that are then looking after the surrounding countryside. You've got a lot of more Viking Age post holes near the first house. And you've got what they're describing in the archaeological report, which is in Swedish, and my Swedish is non-existent, so yay, Google Translate. <laughs> they're calling it a cultural warehouse. And this is um, another building that they found on the site. It's 9.65 metres by 4.5 metres, so it's quite a like a small building okay quite you know four and a half meters is like two people wide four and a half meters is, yeah well yeah i suppose yeah, so it's quite like a long narrow building yeah and in there they found the floor is very much different to what's outside they've got a clay layer a charcoal layer and a very large quantity of animal bones. They've got about seven kilograms of animal bones coming okay. out of that layer. And they're all laid horizontally, which means they've not just dug a pit and chucked them all in this way and that. They're all laid almost on a flat surface on a floor. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and these animal bones, um, many of them contain what they call butchery marks. Yeah. So this is where you take, um, you take one animal and one right big knife tar... Yeah. And rearrange the animal into steak and or sausages and ancillary bits. Indeed. And by doing so, you tend to cut against the joints because those are the easiest places to get the animal into bits. Yeah. So you're taking legs off and heads off and ribs out and squishy bits out the middle and you're ending up discarding a lot of the bony parts and keeping the bits with the meat on. Okay. So when you're doing that, you're using one very big knife tar mm -hmm. and that becomes, it, it will end up marking the bone and nicking it. Yeah. So you will end up with what they call butchery marks because they know, um, you know, you take, take one cow, there's ways that you can butcher that. Yeah. And we see the same butchery marks, you know, if you handed a butcher a, a cleaver and a, cow and told him to break it down you get the same kind of cut marks happening from his knife as we get on these original 
ones so they're cutting them in the same places and they're leaving the same kind of marks around the joints and the bones okay so that stayed consistent to like modern butchery yeah so um, granted modern butchery is a little bit more sophisticated well yeah grand right. and we're not generally modern. tending to work with iron knives modern ish yeah but, so yeah. the butchery marks will tell us that they're deliberately killing these animals to eat them yeah rather than killing them for hides mm -hmm. uh, they yeah they're killing them for the meat I understand there's also more than one way to skin a cat. There is. So and I'm the told. the first stage is catch the cat. Mm. When you do that... Second stage is nurse your wound. Yeah. Third stage is give up. Third stage is go for a tetanus shot, generally. <laughs> do not... I do not know, but... We like cats. <laughs> we do. Do not skin cats, lovely yeah. listeners. Do not skin cats. Bad, bad idea. No. So... They've got about seven kilograms of animal bones out of this with butchery marks. Yeah. They've also got ceramics. They've got a lovely needle that came out. Yes, it came out in seven pieces in the excavation, but they've got all seven bits. Okay. So they can fit it all back together again. It's a really lovely That's fabric some needle. Fiddly little archaeology going yeah, on there. It's some mad fiddly archaeology. Um, they've got a fabric weight and they've got what they th thought was a fire steel. Okay. But it's too thin to be a fire steel, so the tentative identification is that it was an amulet ring. A uh, fire steel as in what you would use with flint to start a fire. Yeah, to yeah. create a spark yeah. to, to light tinder. Um, and they've also found part of a coin. Okay. And it's quite an interesting coin. And archaeologists who specialise in coins have a... generally will specialise in one particular style of coin or one particular culture of coin because there are thousands of yeah. them so this particular coin this part of a coin has been identified as part of a viking coin okay it's one that was minted for ethelred the second in york i've heard of york yes We've talked about York before. We have. So Ethelred II rules from 978 to 1016 AD. Okay. So this coin being over on this little tiny village site in Sweden, A, tells us that there's some kind of trade route going on. Yeah. The coins made it all the way over there. And B, gives us a particular date for the site because the coin can't exist in that context. Mm. Unless it's of that date or older. So we don't know how long the coin was in circulation before it was buried on this site. Okay. So it could have been in circulation the year after it was minted. It could have been 10 years after it was minted, 50 years, 100 years after it was minted. And then it's been dropped on the site inside that context layer. So yeah. that helps us date what's in there. Okay. The other thing that helps us date is the ceramics. Again, archaeologists can, who are specialised in ceramics can get very, very nerdy about ceramics. <laughs> it's fabulous. So they've also got the remains of three ovens on the site. And, yeah, it's kind of like this little farm, domesticated animal farm site. What is going on in what they call the culture warehouse, I do not know. It's clearly where a lot of butchery is happening and a lot of artefacts are turning up in that one particular little building, but not anywhere else, not in the domestic context. It's only in there. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a strange 
site in a way. It's a little bit of a tiny, tiny village farm site. Yeah. Um, but I know you've also looked at some of the stuff that's at Little Ulevi. I have, because um, you told me a little bit about it in advance. So, uh, and I went off looking. Um, the bit I was I was finding quite interesting was some work by Neil Price. Neil Price did a paper in 2014 uh, called Nine Paces from Hell." That's uh, ominous. And I'm trying to work out whether he was using whether he was named after the band. The, the band, the orchestra, the, the company, music company, whatever mm-hmm. they um, There's a music company that does music, a, 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 a lot of uh, sort of things quite like... quite rousing, rousing music. Really, really good. I like it. It's, it's really good stompy, stuff. rousy music. Yeah, and yeah. some and they do for, they do like commission work and stuff. They do for trailers, film trailers and that kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, and they're called Two Steps From Hell. And I kind of like that. Now, I'm wondering whether Mr. Price was using a similar concept for his paper name. Um, so he's talking about um, this Lila Ulevi place. Little Ulevi. Little yeah. Ulevi. Uh, and he's referring specifically to a site that they found near, presumably near the, the village that you were referring to. Yeah. And it's a, it's believed to be a, a site of deep spiritual significance. <gasps> um, That's it. That's my summoning phrase. <laughs> I have been summoned. It's um, it's a it's thought to be a ritual. Deep site. ritual significance. Yes. House. <laughs> what do I win? Stalls. Oh. Um. I mean, yay. It's it's thought to be a ritual site of some description. Give and he goes. WHS. I'll be right back. <laughs> what? On the what? And you'll be right back. <laughs> I didn't even hear. <laughs> So he talks about um, the this this site being a kind of um, elevated earthwork with post holes and boulders and things set around it, packed stone over it, and he speculates that it's a. Um, I say speculates. I mean speculates is in in an academic, mm-hmm. knowledgeable sort of a way, um, <clears throat> that you know he. he Think he's thinking about the the sort of rituals and things that would have perhaps taken place there, and he's he's doing it in context of this paper that he's 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 writing was about uh, the the sort of theatrical um, ritual practices surrounding funeral rites mm. and things, and he's talking about the fact that it was it was very I want to say performative. I don't mean performative in the sense that it was insincere, but I mean it was very. Sort of people were up and doing things, and yes, you know there was all sorts yeah. of activity going on, and uh, and and, and all that kind of an thing. accepted sequence of events that is known to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he goes on, he goes on to talk about um, the, um, the the sort of all the stuff about how the graves are set up, and you know how how people and grave goods and things are deposited in there, and what the sequence is, and all that kind of thing, but. What I was quite interested in was the was the was the um, the site name, Ulevi. He says comes from uh, the the V at the end, V I at the end, is from a word meaning sanctuary, mm. uh, or a a sort of um, uh, a sacred place, a place sacred to a particular 
deity or what power. I would know as a vey. A vey, yeah, exactly, yeah, presumably the same word. Mm. Um, and Ulevi is uh, thought to be a sacred place to the god Ul, and you'll have to excuse my pronunciation because I can't do it, but that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got me interested. It seems that not an awful lot is known about this particular god. Not a whole lot, to be fair. Um, thought to be one of the Aesir. But also strongly associated with the Vanir and is known to wander between the two quite readily. Yeah, give or take. In so much as any of them have got a deity passport. Yeah. <laughs> they go between the borders. I mean, borders are subjective, I think, <laughs> in most cases. But uh, no, it was interesting. They said there were there were thing there'd been things um, found nearby. Uh, you mentioned um, the hearths and whatever in the village, but around the the ritual site, um, he's talking about uh, posts post holes suggesting that posts have been erected in groups of three. <gasps> Yay, three! Which were, of course, being the the root of nine is very significant uh, in the culture. Uh, he also talks about um, you mentioned amulet. Yes, uh, what steals. they think tentatively might have been an amulet ring. Yeah, because it's too thin to be a fire steel. Well, he um, <clears throat> he describes that there are. Um, he said more than sixty iron amulet rings had been found on the site, uh, buried between the posts and the southern edges of the stones, with uh, a handful of others found on top of the platform. He says this is from his. Uh, this is from that paper. Um, he says more amulets were found in the form of miniature shields together with lances, arrows, and fire steels. Lances was interesting to me. Yeah, I'm I would sure not... that it's like you know horse lances. Yeah, well that's that's what I when somebody says lance, that's what I assume. Yeah, that's that's the image I get, but I'm fairly sure. I didn't think they were big on cavalry. They're not. Especially the Icelandic. Well, the Viking age horses are smaller and stockier. Yeah. So they're not like the great big kind of thundery shire cart horse things of the Middle Ages. Mm. But he was saying this site was was mostly in use between AD 600 and 750. Oh wow, so earlier. So earlier, quite a considerable bit earlier than the mm. the, the domestic uh, remnants. Yeah. But I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and the reference to Ulla as well. Yes. Um because the idea of a, a, a sort of... It, I get the impression that um, this is a person, uh, this is a deity linked strongly to a particular area. Um, yeah, the, I mean, there's, there's very much sort of evidence that different gods are worshipped in different areas. Mm, mm. Not necessarily exclusively, but some of them are stronger in certain areas than others. Yeah. So this could easily just be an area where Ullr is is accepted and quite quite well known, quite powerful amongst the all of the pantheon. He's the one that they will tend to go to first. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's interesting though. Yeah, I think one of the things I find really interesting about a the archaeological remains, which awesome, <laughs> um, but then what we tend to get is. Um, a lot of reports and articles excitedly talking about a temple to Ullur. Yeah. And 
from the archaeology, we know it's a, a site that isn't, in, in the case of the piece that you were describing, it's not a site where people live. No. It's got no hearths, it's got no wells, it's got no walls, it's got no bones with butchery marks on it, although those can sometimes arrive in ritual context. Those are all in the domesticate site, which happens a little bit later than your that particular site. Yeah. So something else is going on in that space that isn't domestic, it isn't defensive, it isn't mortuary, it's something else. Mm. So... I've seen, even in the course of, of looking at this site and just refreshing my memory about it, I saw a lot of articles which were kind of very modern, um, some of them heathen, very modern, very excited articles about the fact that there's this temple to Ulla and isn't it amazing? It's like, well, no, actually, it's we can never know that. No. There's no way... We can find, you know, food records and hearth records, but finding records of faith in the archaeological record mm. it's faith is often performative yeah and what we have in the archaeological record is the end result of that not necessarily the experiential and performative actions that led up to that moment we just have the last bit mm. So we don't have the full ceremony, we don't have the full ritual, the social nuances and context that went on within that. We've got none of that at all. We've just got the last little bit. And also, to what extent do we think that... I mean, we talk about temples, but did, would they have had them? I mean, that... Obviously, the word is Roman. Um, the But to what extent is the concept universal i mean looking at these these this paper that um neil price did um and he's talking about these these sort of funerary funerary rites and thinking back to what we talked what we've talked about before about the, the the ship burials and i'm just wondering to what extent they would have had or needed temples in the sense that we have them i mean we as modern Pagans slash heathens slash whatever label you're, uh, mm. you're, 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 you're applying. Uh, but let's say pagan as a general. Yeah. You know, we as modern pagans tend to concern ourselves with things like temple spaces and things like that. I mean, yeah, a lot of us will do outdoor yeah. rituals and all that kind of thing. But we, we all sort of have this, you Great know. Great stirring for <coughs> wanting a, this yeah. kind of wistful idea that if only we had temples it would be better yeah yeah and i and i wonder just to what extent i mean i yes all right i can say that you know back in the day the romans had because we still got them i mean you can see you can go to you can go to rome and and and, and stand in the forum and you can see what's left of several yeah quite temple of saturn quite sizable temples yeah, yeah. pantheon yeah i mean there's only there's only like a little bit of the saturnian portico left but it's there, and mm. we know that we know what it used to be used for. It was a very important building in the city. But outside of that, and of, and I know that you know Christianity, and and I know Judaism has, and Islam have their have their own, and you know lots of people now have them. But mm. I wonder to what extent cultures like the Norse, like the northern the Germanic tribes from way back when. Would they necessarily have had that? The Druids, you know, the Celts, 
I say Celts. The, the yeah. people, the, the, the loose association, the many peoples, peoples whom we refer to as the Celts. Yeah, um, there's certainly there's the the most famous one is the description of the temple at Uppsala by Adam of Bremen. Of course, yes. Come, Kiff. Come. <laughs> We're going back to the north. Yep. Um, so the Zap Brannigan of the Zap Brannigan of the conversion of, <laughs> of Northern Europe. But, it, but again, there was a conversion in progress at that point. There wasn't when he first went there. He, he no. didn't really do it over sort of one year. He had to take like four or five attempts at it, to I be honest. I suppose you would. Yeah, I suppose he, you would. He kind of kept getting kicked out. <laughs> and it slows him down a little bit. Um, <laughs> but he goes back and does it again. And gradually, gradually gets a foothold. And he describes temples and rites and rituals. Mm. I mean, we've certainly, we certainly know they have sacred spaces. Yeah. We've got the accounts of... Um, the ermine saw the world tree, which a, a notable Christian, no, naming no names, goes in and takes an axe to and drops it to the floor and then writes about the fact that he's heroically cut a tree down and everybody's very grumpy with him about it. Yay. Um, yes. Um, but Hurrah. I mean, they have got buildings that they use, but they're not necessarily... Um, the grandeur of, say, a Roman temple. Mm, mm. Um, they would be grand in their own way. Yeah, but I mean, they're I'm, not kind of. I'm not doing a. I'm not doing a temple measuring contest. It's basically. I'm just. I was just interested in the in the in the in the sort of was that a concept? Yeah, that, that it they is. Would have had because, like I say, I tend my 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 mind tends to drift to, the 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 sort of Celtic peoples to the Druids specifically, and I I sort of imagine them more. And whether this is just wanting to be outside rather than inside. Yeah, I mean, this might just be pop culture indoctrination rather yeah. than me knowing things. But you know, I always imagine that the druids would would be more sort of conducting their rites in groves, in rather groves than outdoors, in, yeah, you know, by lakesides. Yeah, yeah. Get in the building. You're not my supervisor. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think looking at sites like this one, Little Aleri, there is, yes, there are archaeological remains, but then how do we ethically interpret those remains so we don't take our interpretations past what we can find? Mm. Yes, we can tell an awful lot, and we have people who have dedicated their lives to becoming specialists, and they can pick up a piece of a coin and tell you precisely when and where it was minted yeah and in what country and in what place and oh yeah this is a quarter of whatever it is and it's probably come from over here mm. and did you happen to find such and such and such and such with it yes we did oh yeah that's about right so there are people who are hugely specialized in their fields and collectively those people can tell us an awful lot mm. but then looking at those sites from a modern heathen yeah we want to have that connection with our ancestors we want to understand how they lived so we can better understand our faith through that lens yeah um it feels incredibly important to me to learn about that period in time oh, yeah. and understand those people through what remains i mean an archaeological record is it's kind of like a, a maths equation where all you've got is the result. I hated those. And you kind of 
you've not <clears throat> you've maybe not got an awful lot of the preceding equation. Yeah. You know, like uh, a funerary record or a in in this case like the domestic settlement and then this ritual context settlement. You've kind of got little glimpses of what might be in that full equation before that answer, but you yep. don't actually get the full equation and you never can. No. There are pieces of it that will forever remain missing. Mm. You can guess the rough shape of it, but the nuances, the detail, getting to what, No go. Yeah, yeah can't, can't get to it. Mm. So I think there is, for me, um, a caution in being a modern heathen in how we look to read about these sites, interpret them, incorporate that knowledge into our practice, but that we don't take it too far. Yeah. We don't start saying, oh, well, this is definitely a temple to Ullur when we can't actually ever be sure of that. Mm. We've got a piece of archaeological record, but we have to be very careful as to how far we can interpret that record. Yeah. And reading the the number of modern articles about this site, which all talk about a temple to Ullur, sent me back to the original archaeological reports, which don't mention anything don't of the kind. Don't mention temples at all. Don't no. mention it as a temple. The only connection they will pull out is the, the etymology of the name. Yeah. Which place name etymology, again, is a specialised field. Mm. And it, again, has its place. And you can take it in combination with other evidence, but you can't take it on the as the evidence itself no. on its own. No. So, yeah, for me, there's very much um, a, a sort of a warning almost of of yes, I want to feel that same connection as well, but the archaeological remains will only take me so far. Yeah. And the saga literature that we get as fast as we can translate it will again only take us so far. And we have to then maybe look at how does that, how do we incorporate that into our practice? How do we understand their ritual practices and can we incorporate those into our own, mm. but being very mindful that we might not have a temple to Ullah here. No. We might have a temple to somebody else. We might not have a temple at all. Yeah. This might just been a place where they threw all their broken arm rings because it was traditionally, it was funny, and Ood the Tiny started it off one winter and everybody just carried on going with yeah. it. We might have a, a place of deep oathing and ritual significance year on year where people make marriage oaths and legal oaths and they will give their arm ring as part of that oath to that sacred space. Yeah. We might have something completely different. Indeed. And so, yeah, for me, it's about how, how do we interpret these sites? How do we find that connection? But how are we then mindful about how far that connection can take us? Hmm. So lovely listeners. We're going to leave you pondering that around the virtual campfire. All good. We kind of went all over the place in that one, didn't we? Well, kind of. Yeah. But, you know. Oh, good. So, lovely, lovely listeners, if you want to find us online and come and talk archaeology, it would be awesome. <laughs> you can find us online. Um, now I do the end bit. Now you can do the end bit, Okay. Yeah. You can find me on Facebook under Suzanne Martin. Or you can find me for now on Twitter at Geether and Jeans <laughs> and also on my blog at Geether and it's... Jeans or I come and hang out on the um, Frithcast Discord 
Yeah. Every now and again, you can just drop me a comment or a query on there or come and say hi. It would be all good to have a chat and come and see you. Or talk to you on Twitter while it's still going. Or that too. Yeah, and uh, if you want me for any reason, uh, I'm on Facebook, Kate Coldwind. Come look me up. And if you do a search while you're on Frith, uh, while you're on Frithcast, no. yes. While you're on Facebook, you can just do a search on Frithcast Pod. That will take us take you to our little page on there, with links to uh, our group and to the Discord server, which yeah. is our virtual virtual campfire. And if you find yourself zooming around the woods and you can't find the virtual virtual campfire, just give one of us a nudge. We'll get you an invite. It's no problem. Yeah. Come and have a cuppa around the virtual virtual campfire with us. It would be grand to see you. Or find a hedgehog carrying a biscuit tin and follow it. Yeah. If you find them carrying bags of marshmallows, you've got to the right place. Basically. Yeah. Lovely listeners, thank you very much for joining us for this episode. We will talk to you all again in around about a fortnight for episode 159. 159? I know! How good is that one We're getting through them! We are. How good is that one going to be? I don't know. I don't know what it is yet. I don't know either. Do you? It's going to be good. I hope somebody does. Hello, listeners, if you know what the next episode is. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. We will see you and talk to you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.